0: Well, we're back in Romans this morning, and uh, we're going to slow down a little bit. Uh, I know that's a shocker, but we're going to stop here. Uh, we're going to slow a little bit and, and kind of um, just look at the first four verses of Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 and 7 particularly are, are so dense when it comes to sanctification, uh, Christian obedience, and, and the life of the Christian that... Um, yeah, I, I thought I, at first I, I, I crammed everything into the, the entire chapter into one session. And then I'm like, you know what? I think it's best that we break this up and, and try not to, uh, to speed through it. It's just so important for the Christian life. So that's what we're looking at today. I want to remind you of where we've come from um, in Romans chapter four and five r- Remember Paul's main concern throughout this section. Justification by faith. That was the the primary emphasis of Romans chapter 4. Then we have uh, this brief excursus at the beginning of chapter 5, the the fruit of this justification. We have peace with God. Uh, We stand in a state of grace before God. We're enabled to rejoice even in our sufferings. We are given endurance and character and hope. By this gospel as it leads us in the Christian life. And, and then he moved to the federal headship of Adam and Christ. This is what we considered two weeks ago, right? That there are two representatives for the entire human race Adam and Jesus Christ, the first Adam and the last Adam. And so, such are God's dealings with human beings, with mankind that we all fall under the representation of these two individuals. Whether we are in Adam, we reap the benefits, um, the cursings of his disobedience. But in Christ, we reap the rewards, the justification, the eternal life of his obedience as well. Adam and Christ have acted on behalf of everybody in the human race. And that's Paul's major concern in chapter 5. His point in that is that life and death reign in these two individuals. And and remember, that's how we're going to get to, or that's how he's transitioning into sanctification. He's talked about justification. We're made right with God. Now he's transitioning into the Christian life. And that transition there is in that doctrine of federal headship. If you are in Christ... These are the benefits. This is the fruit that's going to flow out of your union with Christ. If you're still in Adam, this is obviously the death and destruction that comes in him. And so, in that sense, uh, remember our conclusion two weeks ago, last time we were here in Romans. Um, Like pieces of a puzzle that go together to form a big picture, Adam what happened in the garden, original sin, human depravity, and then Moses and the law and, and the obedient life of Christ, his death, and the imputation of Adam and Christ, are not just abstract doctrines. It's not just like, okay, here's original sin, here's what happened in the garden, you know, here's Jesus Christ. They all go together, they all fit together. And they form this picture of the gospel, and if you if you remove one of those, uh, you're in danger of losing the gospel altogether. Uh, we considered that from many different standpoints a few weeks ago. Just even in saying like, well, um, it's not fair that Adam acts on behalf of everybody else, so that 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 I um, suffer because of Adam's sin. That's not really fair. Well, in the same token, we would say. We, we could also say, how then is it fair that Jesus Christ acts on your behalf and you reap the benefits of His obedience? See, these things go together. This is the conclusion. This is kind of how all these aspects form the picture of the gospel. So, um, <clears throat> today, I want to consider the implications of us being in Christ. And, and, and what that relates to Christian living. In fact, This is going to be today and next week and and maybe two weeks from today as well uh, as we make our way through chapter 6 and into chapter 7. The implications of us being united under the federal headship of Jesus Christ. And here what we're going to see is that Paul develops his doctrine of union with Christ um, in relation to how it leads us to walk in newness of life. Walk being a metaphor, of course, of the Christian life. The direction, the steps that we take. A practical day-to-day obedience of the Christian walk, including the direction that we are heading. And if we think about this, okay, walk in newness of life, remember that that is all part of this central thesis of the epistle. Um he writes, and, and if you think back way back to um, when we opened with chapter 1, uh, we looked at how, in both at the beginning in 1 5 and the end of Romans, Paul mentions that he's proclaiming the gospel to bring about the obedience of the faith. It's his purpose. His purpose is so that the church might walk in newness of life. Not just the church, but he proclaims the gospel to everyone, to Jew and to Gentile, to Greek, barbarian, Scythian, free. He he proclaims this gospel in order that ultimately the obedience of the faith would be brought out. So this is part of his central thesis. And um, I guess for our purposes... Our thesis today might be the implications for day-to-day Christian living are to be drawn out from our union with Christ. That union comes through justification by faith. This is how the gospel is, the power of God. Power of God into salvation. The power of God that produces deep and dynamic change for our character and our behavior in this life. Right? Make sense? From union with Christ, we are united to Christ through faith. The gospel produces in us deep, dynamic change in our character, in our behavior, in our Christian walk. So, any questions before we dive into the text? Pretty clear? All right, good. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Let's read the text and jump in. How about a volunteer, if you wouldn't mind reading that loud and clear for us? Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. So he opens with this question, this rhetorical question. Well, what shall we say then? What shall we say therefore? What shall we say in light of everything that I've just been saying? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound more and more? Remember... This major point in this from chapter 3 to 521, and that actually should be like, I think it's 324 to 521. I left off a digit there. The law is not a means of salvation. To be right before God, to be justified before God, comes by faith alone. That's That's been an emphatic point that he has made. So naturally then, the question arises, especially to the Jew, the Jew being like, wait, wait, we can't let these Gentiles into this, uh, into our religion, for lack of a better term, um, if they're going to disregard the law that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, the very finger of God revealed this to us. So, does this give you know a license to sin? If we are justified by faith, does it does it? Do we just throw the law away and it doesn't matter anymore? That's the question. That's the question he's anticipating. That's the question that that in other places we see that um, uh, Paul says they've slanderously reported that of us. That's what they're telling people that we teach. If good deeds are worthless for obtaining salvation, what good are they? Right? You can't be right before God by your obedience. So why do we care then? Remember how we ended in the last chapter, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more? Does that mean then that the more we sin, the more grace we receive? I mean, that's a pretty cool arrangement, right? I sin more, I get more grace. Pretty cool I say that in regards to our fallen flesh, obviously. So his question, I mean, his answer to this is by, mo, by no means. Uh, it's, it's emphatic. Right. He's pulling no punches with this. In fact, he doesn't even really go on to explain it in great detail. He just says, absolutely not. Um, if this is your conclusion, then, then you haven't understood the gospel. If this is your conclusion, then you certainly don't understand union with Jesus Christ. If this is your conclusion, you don't understand justification by faith alone. That's his point. So, he says basically, how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? And that's the most appropriate picture of a dead body that I could find, so... How? How is it possible? How can we? How is it possible to live any longer in sin if we've died in sin? And and the metaphor there should be pretty easy, right? Um, um, A dead body ceases to function. How is it possible for for a dead person to walk? Well, it's not possible. It's not even a question of, well, are they going to choose to walk that way? Are are they going to choose to walk? It's it's not a question of, you know, it's not an optional question. The question is how? How? It's, It's not possible for a Christian who has died to sin to live any longer in it. Just like it's not possible for someone who has died to, to get up and start walking around. It's not possible. In fact, it's so impossible that it doesn't even really need elaboration. It's just obviously true. That's kind of what he's saying here. How is it possible if you've died to sin? Yes, Mary. Uh, we're going to get to that. You're anticipating me. That's good. That's good. So listen. Look. There you go. Here's your question right there. Essentially. Why don't you answer me. What does it mean then for a Christian to have died to sin? Okay. That's a good answer. Okay. Okay, Grace? We don't live in sense, we don't stay, we don't try, it's not that we're looking for it. sin. Okay. It's part of our whole nature, but we're not living, it. we're not actively living. Okay, that's good, that's good. Anybody else? Luke? We're not enslaved to it. We're not enslaved to it, okay. Good answers, Kaysen? absolutely so you see sin is wrong there's a repentant heart you're not living in it living in it you're not enslaved to it that's good um, so I'll go back to the beginning but I think all of you kind of nailed the point does it mean that we will never sin or that it doesn't matter when we sin no Obviously, hopefully, obviously, right? Um, I mean, First 1 John 1, 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's speaking not solely of initial faith and in repentance, but of the ongoing nature of the Christian life. Uh, obviously, we have a corporate prayer of confession or a song of confession of sin in our liturgy every single Lord's Day morning. It is because confession is a regular part of worship. It is worship. It pleases God. It's a regular part of the Christian life. We can't approach God in and of ourselves just waltzing into His presence as if It's all good. He's all love. His grace abounds. It doesn't really matter. We are called by Scripture to live lives of daily repentance, die to ourselves, take up our cross, acknowledge our sin. So anytime we approach God in prayer, in worship, anytime we draw near to God, we are to draw near, confessing our sins, of course, but in Christ, trusting that His, uh, His blood and righteousness cleanse us from all Uh, His his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So it doesn't mean that we will never sin. In fact, if you want to go to our confession here, I love this statement um, in 17.3. Our confession says that although believers may, through the temptation of Satan in the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, that means fallen flesh, their neglect of means of their preservation, neglecting the means of grace, prayer, scripture, worship. Fall, that because of these things, believers may fall into grievous sins. So there's the statement that we will sin or we do sin. And for a time may even continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure. So this hints at the fact that you know, our sin does matter. It displeases and grieves our Father, our Heavenly Father. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? So we may incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit. But although this happens, believe, uh, uh, and we may, may also have come to the um, come to have our graces and comforts impaired. So the grace and comfort of the Christian life. We may have our hearts hardened. We may have our consciences wounded. We may hurt and scandalize others. We may bring temporal judgments upon ourselves. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, uh, they were abusing the Lord's table. And he says, this is the reason why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have died. My interpretation of that is that these were true believers but that that God, uh, because of their sin, had brought temporal punishments upon them, even death. This may happen, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ to the end. And So the confession, which obviously uh, mirrors almost word for word the Westminster Confession on this point, acknowledges that we sin, acknowledges that our sin matters, but also acknowledges that to the true believer, they will be renewed to repentance. That's what it means not to live in sin. All right, so that's, what, that's one answer to how, you know, to what it means that Christians have died to sin. Um, Does it mean then that sin has no power? No more power or influence over us? Mary's saying no. (laughs) And now she's questioning herself. Does it mean that sin has no more power or influence over us? Does anybody disagree with the no? Anyone here want to say that sin does not have power or influence over us? Kim?: I could see. Well, we okay, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it, Cody. Yeah, I think just the issue of be power over us uh, does
1: communicate sort of a rain. right? Authority—that sort of thing. We would say that rain is broken. So I, I struggle with the power over us kind of language. Karen.
0: So the spirit within us gives us power to overcome our sin. It's stronger than our sin, sounds like what you're saying. Chandler? Okay, some diplomatic answer there, yes. Well, just think of a few verses later. Verse 12: Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. If sin had no power over us or no influence over us, why would he say, Don't let it reign? That's my question. And just to be clear, I think all of you answered correctly. Looking at it from a different standpoint, a different perspective. What does it mean that Christians have died to sin? Well, died to sin? We're not enslaved to sin. Um, Maybe a, a better way to put it is oftentimes we speak of you know, we're good Calvinists, so we speak of, of the T in the tulip, total depravity. Um, and this is a truth that recognizes that um, we are, by nature, in Adam, totally depraved and unable to do anything savingly good. So a man cannot, uh, an unbeliever, a sinner, cannot redeem himself in and of his own strength, in and of his own power. The question might be then, are Christians still totally depraved? I see yes. Grace? we have the Spirit to overcome living in us. You sound like what Karen said a few minutes ago. And I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, in our flesh, there is that inclination still that, 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 that the flesh, the fallenness of Adam, that still has influence over us. But the Spirit is greater than our flesh. That's right. And I think when you talk about salvation, you're not just talking, I I understand you to mean not just justification, but sanctification. Like we can't even work our own righteousness in and of ourselves. That is why the gift of the Spirit is so beautiful um, and so important in the sense that, you know, Romans 8 anticipating Paul by the deeds, excuse me, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Mark? Yeah.
1: He said, "That's how strong the Holy Spirit is, and we don't, we don't ever give him that credit." Yeah. And that's how powerful the Holy Spirit. So we can live once you're a Christian. Uh, through the Spirit, he said, that probably is not
0: going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. And it's interesting as you so think about influence. that. Sin has influence. Sin has influence, absolutely. And as you think about that, what's interesting is that um, you know we also confess the sovereignty of God. He could ordain that we sin no more. He could perfectly sanctify us right here and right now, but he doesn't. Why is that? Well, he's, he's wise and we are not. Um, um, but, but there's a lot of things in play there, and that he, he, he allows us still to follow, fall into sin as part of our sanctification and growth. To our final salvation. Chandler? Um, with the the grave, I think that's helpful to keep in mind that we being renewed and transformed. Part of that is, as a new creation in Christ, we're putting to death the old man and the sinful nature. And even though we continually will kill the sin in us through our lives by the Spirit, that work is perfected until the last day. Yes. Yeah, the Bible is clear in that, that our final sanctification won't happen until we have a new body, ultimately. Uh, at, at, well, I, I take that back. Until the last day when we enter God's presence, uh, our souls will be perfected. Uh, but ultimately, when we are re- reunited with our body in the resurrection uh, is the full completion of our salvation. Yeah. Very good. Uh, all, all, all great answers. Good feedback. Well, What Paul means is we're not enslaved to sin, that it no longer dominates us or rules over us. Right? It's no longer our master, which which we have no control over, that we must obey. We have the ability, we have the power by the Spirit to resist it and to overcome it. Think of uh, the phrase um, in the hymn that we will sing in the next hour. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. I'm not going to subscribe to the sanctification theology of John Wesley there. But uh, wait, is that John Wesley or is his brother? Anyway, but <laughs> um, you know, the hymn it, it certainly sings of a very beautiful and central truth of the Christian life that upon justification by faith, the chains of enslavement to sin fell off. And that we have this freedom to now rise from the dead and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. So being dead to sin, being died to sin, it no longer dominates you in the sense that you are enslaved to it. Before Christ, you have no choice. You can't do anything but sin. You're under the the master of sin. You're under the master of Satan. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of that. And how we were enslaved to various passions. and, And how we followed the prince of the power of the air. And followed the course of this world. We had no choice. But in Christ, there's freedom. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Next, he turns to to enforce this metaphor with baptism. Union with Christ and His death and resurrection in relation to um, our baptism. He says, "...do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death... In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism into death. Think about the symbol, the picture of baptism. You descend under the water. You can't breathe under there. This depicts descending into a grave. Death when you ascend up out of the water, depicts resurrection from the grave. Life. It also depicts you go into the water dirty, and you come out of the water cleansed. The point here is that when we hear the Word of God, and we respond in faith, God sets His seal upon us in baptism. Baptism which is why we call, refer to it as a means of grace. This is God Himself sealing to us that the reality of which we were undergoing is true of us. So, to be baptized into Christ means to be joined to Him in everything that He is. He died, we died to sin. He rose to new life we rise to new life as well. Paul is appealing to baptism to reinforce his point about what it means to be united and then to live to Jesus Christ being dead to sin. Uh, Galatians 3:27. "For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, put on like a garment the new man, the new Adam, the second Adam, which results in, of course, following and living, following the steps in which he walked, living righteously, resurrected life of Christ. Now, you know I've got to say a few more words about baptism here. Um, we you think about this, I do want you to notice a connection between faith, the emphasis of four and five, Our justification, baptism, union with Christ, and sanctification, obedience. Um, There's no newness of life. Hopefully, you understand as well that there is no faith. There's no newness of life. There's no union with Christ. There's no newness of life. There's no reality of which baptism points. Um, in many respects, this passage alone encompasses our doctrine of credo-baptism. In fact, you could throw out everything else, and right here is, is everything. We have immersion, which is why we don't sprinkle. We, we, we descend into the grave and we rise up, and that follows the pattern of, of the, the baptisms we see in the New Testament. We have our doctrine of the relation between justification and sanctification. The newness of life, which baptism symbolizes, must follow faith, justification. We have our doctrine of baptism as a means of grace. For something to be a means of grace, faith has to be present. And so, um, Crampton in his book, who was... Um, A Presbyterian who became a Credo Baptist says this The Bible teaches that those who have received baptism have put on Christ. They have been made to drink into the one Spirit. They have participated in the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. They have pledged to walk in newness of life. They have made a pledge of a good conscience towards God. They have continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, Breaking of Bread, Prayers. They have received the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. They have drawn near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and their bodies washed with pure water. They have been raised with Him through faith in the working of God. These statements are all made regarding those who have received water baptism. And they are all attestations which indicate the presence of regeneration in the party that has been baptized. Now, I don't say all this to get into a baptism debate, but, but in a sense so that you see the main point that Paul is making here. The implications of a genuine Christian can no longer live in habitual rebellion against God. Or in uncaring about sin, which would be antinomianism. It's impossible. How can someone live that way? You can't. Once alive in Christ, we have new desires to love God, we have new ability to grasp truth, we have uh, the exercise of faith where it's impossible to return ultimately and finally to our formal former state of living mark Yes. In fact, let me read you a quote. I I cut it out for the space of time, but let me read you a quote on this very, that very point from uh, James Montgomery Boyce. Um, He addresses that very thing in relation to, okay, what happens when we do live in sin? Yes. Yes. It is a hard thing to understand. and Oh, here we go. James Montgomery Boyce says this. God will not stop you from sinning, but He will stop you from continuing in sin. And He will do it either in one of two ways. Either He will make your life so miserable that you will curse the day you got into sin and beg God to get you out of it, or perhaps God might put an end to your life. That's a frightening thought, without a doubt. And it should humble us. Mary? Oh, man. How do you know? The question is, how do you know you're being punished for sin? As opposed to just suffering that happens in the Christian life. How do you know? Um, Well, I mean, the... the, (laughs) I guess the best way I could answer that would be is is that, you know, obviously it's it's uh, it is to be approached prayerfully through the wisdom of God's word and the wisdom of many counselors um, identifying, you know, um, helping you identify whether sin has brought this. And uh, generally speaking, um, I, I tend to to believe that God makes that clear. You know, we listen to our conscience. We have a conscience for a reason. And um, you know, I think there's some legitimacy to the fact of when sometimes we suffer and we're tempted to think that, and we're like, "Well, my conscience is clear um, and and in some respect, um, it's not a fail-safe guide, but uh, in some respect, we can trust our own conscience. That's probably the best way that I could answer that. Maybe somebody else has a better answer, Kim. I'm
2: just Disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. That is sandwiched by his uh, attitude towards the whole thing as one of you are my strength, you are my salvation. Uh, there's a sense of repentance, open the gates of righteousness to me. So, regardless of whether or not this, this happened, is it hardening my heart or is it leading me back to the cross? Yeah, to, uh, to repentance and to. Ultimately say yes and
0: amen to yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's a good answer. Yeah. Well, again though, it's impossible to ultimately, finally, habitually return to our former state of living. Does not mean we don't sin. Does not mean that we don't go through se- uh, seasons of great sin. Look at David, for example. Um, Our best estimate is that the adultery and murder season of his life lasted um, at least the better part of a year to a year and a half. But it's impossible for a genuine believer to fully finally settle in that lifestyle because they have died to sin. When a non-Christian sins, they're acting in accordance with their identity. But when we are united to Jesus Christ, everything changes. We have a new identity. We have a new power of living. The person who claims to be a Christian but has no concern or sorrow over sin, no remorse when they sin, refuses to take steps towards repentance when they sin, is very likely or possibly self-deceived. That's some of the implications of Paul's teaching here. When we are united, the fruit of that union are on display in our life. By their fruits you shall know them. And he says all of this in Romans 6 to show that, look, the law, you know, it doesn't justify, but it still has a purpose. Christ has saved you for a reason. There are certain things that follow from this. And he's going to use that to, to encourage and, 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 and you know, stimulate them toward greater obedience in the Christian life, ultimately that stems from faith by the power of the Spirit. He points back to their baptism as, look, this reality happened to you. You're no longer the same person. Because you went under those waters. You now have that spirit and new means for life. So, just to conclude, to wrap up. The Gospel came to bring about the obedience of the faith. The Gospel carries with it the power of God unto salvation. Power of God is not just for our sanctification, justification, but also for our sanctification. It saves us from sins penalty in our justification, but it also saves us from sins power in our sanctification. And we were saved in order to offer our lives as a living sacrifice in order to obey. And it is impossible for a genuine to believer, a genuine believer not to follow Jesus Christ. In obedience with the general trajectory of their life. Grace? But I think it's kind of just shows the importance of being
2: involved in the church and having close relationships with those in the church. Because whenever you have those relationships where you're vulnerable with one another and live in each other's lives, we can hold each other accountable and we can let each other know and see patterns of sin.
1: Um that I would be awakened to my sin um, and be able to spend that time in those, in the prayer together in those areas. Um, so the pastors can be involved in church discipline just because we will sin but we don't know well, we can't continue in sin if we are Christians.
0: So it's important to be involved in relationships with the believers. Yeah, sanctification is a community project. It's something that I often say around here and you know, it also highlights the importance of a church that preaches the gospel as well. Because you start confusing sanctification and justification, and you're going to be frustrated really quick, and it's going to lead to rotten fruit in your life. Um, absolutely, doctrine is important. Community is is important. Uh, that's all we have time for. we got to conclude. Um, but great feedback today. appreciate that. Um, it, it always helps to further the, the conversation, um, the, our, our study. Uh, next week, we'll look at Romans 6, 5 through 14. So read ahead and prepare for that. It's really an elaboration on what he just kind of said today. So um, with that, let me, let me close in prayer, and we'll prepare for worship. Bow with me in prayer. Our God and Father, we do thank you